Number one, my name is Steve. Most of you know me. I'm one of the elders here at Echo. Um, we are in a, a new year. I think it's the first Sunday of the year, a way to have perfect attendance. You can take that to your grave. So uh, a few things as far as announcements are concerned. I think most of you might have gotten the announcement at the end of the uh, year, but just to uh, make sure that everybody's in the clear that we have uh, found a person to serve as our interim minister, our interim lead minister, and his first Sunday will be the first Sunday of February. So that is going to happen. Um, we're going to kind of do a David Wheatley thing, kind of let them dip their toes into the water. So, you know, you'll still see a lot of different speakers probably until um, he gets up and running. So just keep me, uh, in prayer about that. And uh, it's going to be a new, exciting season for our church. That's number one. Uh, number two, this week, the major thing happening, we do our men's and women's uh, study groups. And this week, the ladies are meeting, correct? And we have Tuesday. Is it Tuesday, Kristen? What day is it? Thursday. That's why I mess up. I've, it's been so long. So I even, if you were one of the three people here before the service started to see the announcements, it's Wednesday uh, at our house down the street. There's a ladies group, and there's a Thursday at Kristen. So if you are a lady and want to start off the new year in that, Kelly, Kristen would be great people to talk to about that. Um, and then, just to even put it, we're, we're wrapping up. If you gave this last year, and we encourage you to give because uh, none of us are getting rich on this deal. We, we are flushing all of this, these funds back into ministry here in the church in the neighborhood. So um, we encourage people to give. This is not your beginning of the year guilt trip. And we're pulling the numbers together now. And it looks like actually for the first year in three years, our giving was up in 2017, which is nice. But friends, I wanted to go up, up, up. But here's the thing. Uh, it, we are working on our end of year giving so that if you are one of those people who use your Schedule B in your IRS forms, we'll get that done soon. But if you want to give, um, you can give digitally online. You can um, put something in the offering box. Uh, we just uh, encourage you to support what we're doing here. We think this is important. hope you do too. And excited to start off the new year with you. So bear with me as I just kind of catch you up because I was gone last week catching you up on uh, where my life is, is there's a new happening within the car household, and is that, that is that we have inducted a bunny into the family. Now, some of you, through uh, life with me, have kind of come to this assumption that is really false, because you think that somehow, like, I hate animals and or pets, like, and because I've heard that rumbling from a few people, and because they're like, I'm just shocked that, you know, Steve allowed a living creature into the house. It's not that it's not that I hate them, and, and actually, Kayla in her conversation with my mom had this, because she's like, your dad had pets growing up. Yeah, but they were outdoors, so there's a little bit of a shift here, but, but it's not that I necessarily hate pets. I think it's just that I like people better. I really do. So as this, you know, I work out of the house, and I didn't have to travel this week, so I would just walk in, Kayla would be off at school, and, you know, I'd walk past the, her room to the bathroom, and that rabbit would just be looking at me. So I'd go into the room, and I'd kneel down at the cage, get eye level with the rabbits, and because they have those weird eyes on the side, I never know where it's actually looking at me, you know, so I'm doing one of these peering type of elements. And I decided to talk to, to try to converse with said bunny, and I just asked the bunny, if you could help me out as I'm working on my sermon this week, bunny, what is the meaning of life? And the bunny's response was this glare. And like every once in a while, the nose would do this little thing. No audible response. No good theory. 
I did a follow-up after this. I said, Bunny, what is it in your inner workings that makes you want to eat your own feces? And the Bunny's response was exactly the same to which when I asked the meaning of life. I use all this as a preface here because we're getting ready to do four weeks on this topic. I've been thinking about this for a while, and I want us to take a, a go at it. And the, the, this mini-series for four weeks is going to be called Human And what I want us to do at the beginning of the year is to look in the mirror and for us to actually grapple with who we are as human beings and even as a species. For us to take this next two weeks to look at what that has meant in the past, to see what that means in the today, and then project to see what it means for us as humanity in the future. And we're going to do, so, do this examination as we do all of our work here at the churches. We always are biblically based, so we're going to open up the scriptures, but particularly a, a couple of books that have been released in the past two years. I really want to nestle into them, and I know some of you have read them, but the author's name is Yuval Noah Harari. And Harari um, is, a, um, is an Israeli, uh, and he's not Israeli, I, I forget his nation of origin, but he is Jewish and he teaches in Jerusalem. And even though he is a historian, what he has done in two works, the first book, Sapiens, released a few years ago, and then Homo Deus, which was just released this last year, was trying to say if, if, if an evolutionary perspective on the universe is true, then what does that mean to humanity? So what I want to do is integrate some of this thought because this is popular scientific thought and see how that meshes in with what we as people of faith believe. Now, in getting why, I want to just start off to talk about the tension that leads me to talk about this, because this is something as someone who has, um, you know, immersed himself in, in study and has lived in the city for over a decade, it's it really something that I think that we need to grapple with because of the tension. Because if you are an urbanite, and when I say urbanite, it doesn't mean that your zip code is necessarily in the city, but if you are, like, working in urban areas or you're in a diverse workplace, you recognize that the many of the people with whom you interact do not share your worldview and that percentage seems to go higher within urban areas and when you talk to them about faith and you probably don't want to talk to them because their preconceived notion is usually that people who are Christian or even people of of different faiths tend to be anti-scientific and illogical And what's interesting is I know many of you, and you work even within those fields. Some of you have science degrees. And it's one of those attacks that, you know, is very difficult to weather as a person of God because you want to be faithful to who the Lord is calling you to be, but at the same time, you you, you want to be able to engage with your colleagues and with your friends. How about just to um, isolate this for a second? Can we talk about, like, climate change? And I really don't want to talk about climate change per se, but if you spend any time on the social medias, you'll find that generally most evangelical Christians have some sort of skepticism towards science, towards climate change. And you might ask yourself why, and, and it's one of those actually divisive things. Whenever a Christian or some leader of faith comes in, you know, it's like, you, you know, I'm sure you've seen some sort of Facebook post or tweet over the last couple of weeks saying, boy, I'd, I'd sure love some of that global warming right now, right? And then that person is usually lambasted by somebody who is just like, you ignorant moron, why can't you accept science? Understand why this conversation really starts. It's not even about climate change. It's about the perspective of the scientific community. A community that by and large rejects any semblance 
of belief in a higher power, in a creator, and believes that those who hold to it are neophytes. Now, this is why that's important. Climate change, then, isn't even about climate change. It's about the broader issue of faith. And many people, when an aspect of their belief is criticized, they see the people that are doing the criticism as enemies, and therefore they make a stand. So this is, it's not, the, the conversation or argument about climate change, I'm going to tell you, is usually launched from those from a theological perspective, and it has nothing to do with science, but it is really ingrained in this idea of your belief in something bigger in this universe than just evolution or chance. And therefore, people who are engaged in those arguments usually launch them forth as a way to try to defend their faith because they're doing what they think the Lord wants them to do. So stick with me. You have to understand, the reason I want us to have this conversation is because usually the characteristics that we see within people like yourself who are urban believers, you usually tend to value diversity and acceptance. I know you. I know the lives that you lead. I know the conversations that you have. And usually when you are in the world, you as a person of faith want to make sure that you're the type of Christian that doesn't make non-Christians think that Christians are morons. Is that true? That's usually what we're trying to project, is that I can be a person of faith, yet I can dwell with people who have different perspectives than I am, and we can have a good relationship, a relationship that also doesn't make me have to check my intelligence at the door. But recognize this, is that the influence of American Christianity over the past 70 years, and I always use that as a caveat because people are trying to say, oh, Christians were always like that. No, at one point, Christians were predominantly in this country urban, and it forced these conversations, and that's why there's always this tension here. But predominantly, the Christian suburban rural view is one that values safety and conformity. And again, I'm not just lobbing grenades because we're at church in the middle of the city today, because I grew up first in the city, then my parents had the American dream and went out to the burbs and we lived on seven acres of land, but we would drive in every week to church in the middle of the city. So I just grew up in the middle of this. So this is not a critique saying, man, if I grew up on a farm, you think I'm an idiot. It's not about that, but recognize that the growth of the suburbs in in the United States, which has influenced American or evangelical Christianity globally, was really crouched in a movement away from cities to be able to escape diversity and to have communities that are stayed and organized. So it was a move towards safety and conformity. And that is the way that some American Christians, and a lot, view their faith. So what they want to do is gather in large gatherings with many Christians who have the same ideas. So it's like, okay, we're in this club, and if you're against us, if it's something that is going to force me to be more diverse in my thought or something, then they reject that. Now, these are the people that you guys love to attack on the internet, right? Whenever you see, like, an evangelical Christian leader say something stupid, you're like, uh, quote, retweet, and then you're going to make a comment like, what an idiot, they don't understand who Jesus really is, right? Because I, I think there's this move, because it's like we think, like, okay, if I can be a Christian who critiques idiot Christian leaders, then my diverse friends will see, like, okay, so that person's a Christian, but he's not, like, those crazy, quacky Christians, right? But I would ask, in that quest to try to gain voice into a community that rejects faith, are we really doing well to understand the opposite aspect of the spectrum? 
See, I see a tension. As much as there's a tension that we live in with evangelicalism and those Christians who claim stuff that none of us want to buy into, there is also this scientific perspective that exists that fully rejects the idea of the miraculous and anything about our faith. What that does is that puts us in this world of tension. That's why I want to talk about this the next few weeks. Because you're reading the books that I read and you're talking to people at bars and parties with, with this perspective. And what I want us to do is be able to unpack that and say, where do we as intelligent followers of God, how can we be faithful to the word but at the same time interact with the diversity before us? So what I want to do this week, if we're talking about human, we're talking about the past. And of course, you know, we're going to start like any good person or any good preacher in the beginning of January. We're going to start in the book of Genesis. So if you have a blue Bible or something, you can end up at Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to uh, do a big textual examination because what I want to do is show both perspectives and try to, un, you know, peel layers off the onion so we can, I don't know, metaphor, see what really smells and makes us cry. I don't, I don't know. Topic 1, the origins of the universe. The big name for this, both from a scientific and a theological realm, is cosmology. It has nothing to do with the Aveda school up the street. This is the study of the origin and evolution of the universe. And science has a cosmology, and we'll talk here in Genesis chapter 1 that this is actually cosmology as well. It's, it's what the, 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 the scripture writers receive from the Lord to try to say this is how the universe works predominantly from a scientific view, if, if you, in those who, who look at just the spectrum of what evolution has become, they date the universe at right about 13.8 billion years old. Now, I, I'm in finance now. I work in numbers all the time. And it's one of those things is that numbers are always difficult to work with because sometimes we grasp them, sometimes we don't. If we use the, you know, if we were in this church 100 years ago when it exists and used the term billion, people would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> let's calm it down because their concept of billion wasn't as readily available as it is to us, right? We used to talk about, you know, when I was growing up, oh, I want to be a millionaire. Now people are like, no, you, you really want to be a billionaire, right? I've had a... Silicon Valley reference within here, but I'm not going to use it right now. I use this very difficult to read bar graph just to illustrate this because I think it's important for us to see. I want us to look at, if we look at a bar graph, the date of the universe, if it's right about 13.8 billion, then the rise of the sapiens actually took place 150,000 years ago. So again, that number is difficult for you and I to grasp, right? 150,000 years. My 2007 felt like it, or 17 felt like it lasted forever, let alone all for 150,000 years. And then the era of recorded human history. So the time that human beings actually started to write down about their existence actually dates to 5,000 years ago, which is still a flipping long time. Recognize this, that when we look... At the date of the universe at 13.8, seriously, in, in this graph, I actually entered in the data, and you can see that there's, you know, there, the, there's not even enough pixels to provide the line for the perspective right there. So in an evolutionary perspective, the insistence that this earth is 14 billion years old, the existence of humanity in that time in recorded human history doesn't even register. 13.8 billion related to 5,000, it won't even show up on the chart. 
And then we have to understand, okay, if this did start, then where did it start? What's the cosmology behind this from an evolutionary perspective? And we all know, and by the way, if you're on the Googles now and you search Big Bang, it takes you forever to actually find something about the actual Big Bang and not the CBS sitcom, which is really horrible. And if you like that, I would love to do a sermon series on how horrible that is, but that's just, that's me preaching. But here's what's interesting, too. If at 13.8 billion years ago the Big Bang starts, understand that within the cosmology, that's not even the beginning of, of the universe. That's actually just the moment that we know that started the chain reaction. This doesn't account for any of the pre-existing things necessary for the Big Bang to include. The creation of energy in space, and most specifically, something that physicists always struggle with is the existence of time. So understand is that even in our simplicity to try to explain it, it's not necessarily there. And even within the Big Bang Theory, and some of you can, you know, you can go online, you can find some of the sharpest Christian thinkers about this, but even some scientists, many scientists, who struggle with this because the Big Bang itself violates multiple laws of physics for the world to exist in such a way. What we have is a, a confidence in the beginning of the universe that is actually not quite as certain as it is told and taught publicly. Friends, there's gaps in this. And I know you're like, okay, you know, this is typical, right? This is good American church. It's like, friends, there's gaps in the Big Bang Theory. You know, right? Like, that's, I am every evangelical preacher who's ever existed. But here's something I think we need to grapple with as we think through this. And that is this. While there are gaps within an evolutionary cosmology, there are certainly gaps within the biblical cosmology. I think that's something that we don't want to admit. Friends, this is, this is something that I deal with and more with evangel evangelical Christians, and this conversation has become incredibly problematic. But recognize this for certain, that the Bible does not exist to tell us every truth that exists. It's funny, years ago, um, Aaron Burgess preached that and said that and it actually caused like a mini theological rift within a few people from that statement. But rec recognize that. There are gaps within the biblical cosmology. We don't know everything. And by virtue in Cincinnati, we're really privy to some Christians who know. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with Answers in Genesis. They actually have two outfits right now. Like they've got the one over in like, um, is it, it's not Wilder, Kentucky. It's the other side, Petersburg. They have one in Petersburg, Kentucky, where they have this great museum. And then they have the big old ark. It's very interesting because they've built museums and these things because what they want to show is the validity and the veracity of the biblical narrative. So understand within this, con uh, this conversation, I'm, I'm not proposing that then the stuff in Genesis didn't actually happen, but there are enough gaps there that we don't know exactly how it happened. But what people want to do is they want to construct certainty within that. Why? Because they want to have the same certainty that the scientific community has. And friends, we're not afforded that. Just had a conversation with my father-in-law last night where, you know, we were talking about some of these issues. And he goes, I was, you know, in a Bible study and I was told that I had to believe that, you know, those 24-hour days that were created in Genesis chapter 1 were literal 24-hour days. And I know we've had this conversation before because it was great because he exited. He's like, we don't know if that was actually 24 hours. You know, God's talking about how it's happened. It's, yeah. And I was like, Yes. Because that's true. Friends, God could have made the entire universe, if we believe that he's all-powerful, in six seconds. He didn't need six days. But why do we throw this on here? We want to have a certainty that the Bible speaks to everything, but it doesn't. It doesn't. 
So what we have to wrap our minds around is this idea. Yes, there are gaps within an evolutionary thing, and we should be able to critique them, but at the time, same time, we have to own up that we don't have all the answers. So how do you and I fill the gaps within the scriptures? That's what's crazy. We have to have faith. It's the worst, right? It's the worst. Why? Because we're intelligent people, and intelligence means knowledge and knowing, and when we don't know, oh, that makes us frustrated. Friends, that's your existence as a follower of Jesus. When this doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean then that you're like, well, it doesn't make sense. I'll give up. I guess I'll just have faith and die. It doesn't mean that we give up, but it means that instead of us going crazy, we have to stop and say, okay, God is all He's given me this much, and he's asking me to employ this. And by the way, there's a whole study that could be based upon this, because people are like, oh, you know, to employ faith is ridiculous. Friends, we employ faith in our everyday life that is not religious. If you have cash in your wallet, you have a piece of faith paper. Because basically, you are hoping that when you hand it over something, they have trust in the United States government, which is the craziest ass thing you can ever think of, right? Like every day you trust in the government to make sure that that piece of paper is valid. You're living by faith, but you're like, well, this is a jump. No, it's, it, I think that's why it's beautiful because it's part of who we are. Now, when we look though at the gaps within the scientific record, what usually happens with staunch evolutionist devotees is that they fill their gaps with hubris and confidence and pride in the existing that they are much far more deconstructionist of a religious perspective than they will want to admit that they are. So listen, it's not just let's dump on science right here, but we have to recognize is that the tension that exists with many is that within a scientific realm, there is no space for them to grant diligence to the supernatural or the miraculous. So when we read the Bible and we're like, well, you know, it wasn't really a universal flood. Like Noah didn't really build an actual boat. Jonah wasn't in actually a real fish. You know, every time when we try to deconstruct this, understand that faith relies solely on the supernatural. And that is going to bring tension with concepts of science, per se. So when I read something in Genesis chapter 1, 1, and understand what a biblical cosmology looks at, it's incredibly simple. Great thing, too, is that you can start with this memory verse, but understand that people who don't even believe understand Genesis 1, 1. Because it succinctly describes the created order. There was a beginning, and it was made. It was made by God. But this isn't a scientific statement. It's not empirically, uh, empirically uh, it's not able to be verified empirically. But that said, the conversation between science and really what we call faith is the difference between the physical and the metaphysical. The metaphysical is something that we really deal with. Questions of being, existence, reality, philosophy. So this isn't just to start a university war between the science department and the philosophy department, but there, are the, there is tension within the conversation, and usually the willingness to allow further grace always comes from the metaphysical side than the physical side. Is it faith in a 14 billion year existence that still isn't explainable or faith in a all-powerful creator who makes all things? It's a difficult conversation, but it's our origins. Can we move on here to the second thing? Because when it comes to you and I as human, is the stature of humanity. 
what it means for me and you today. Because this is one of the things that in Harari's writings that I really appreciate, is that he takes then the scientific evolutionist perspective as fact, and in doing so he says, if this is true, then what does that mean? Because then what he goes to with the existence and the rise of the Homo sapiens is he says basically is that, yeah, six million years ago, we, we had the same grandmother. It was monkey grandmother, right? And there was the one lineage and the other, and we just happened to be on the right side. He brings within the light the tension of what we you know, talk about within scientific record, the rise of Neanderthals, and why did the Homo sapiens actually beat out the Neanderthals in the end? And he goes further into that, but when we get to this conversation, okay, it's not just about who made the world, but then who are you as a human being? What does it mean? And from a scientific perspective then, an evolution scientific perspective, and I'm sorry that I have to interchange this conversation because I want to make sure that there are scientists who allow room for faith. It's not to say it's science versus us, but understand that this perspective right here lends itself to, to, to the idea that we, friends, just happen to be the winners in this great evolutionary race. That our existence today is just because years ago things happened. And not just years ago, millions of years ago that this happened. He goes on to write, and this is, I found this is fascinating, because when he, when, he, when he talks about, you know, how we as sapiens want out, he says, over the past 10,000 years, Homo sapiens have grown so accustomed to being the only human species that it's hard for us to conceive of any other possibility. Our lack of brothers and sisters make it easier to imagine that we are the epitome of creation and that a chasm separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. You know, this comes back to that great argument where Christians are like, well, you know, if we're from monkeys, then why isn't there the in-between? You know, we want to have this argument, but friends, the argument doesn't even matter coming through this because what Harari says and what many agree with is this idea is that we are just supremely arrogant to think that we as humans are actually superior to the other creation of the earth, let alone even just bunnies and animals and other things. But it's funny because he accuses us of being arrogant, but then there's this also the idea, well, when this happened six million years ago, friends, there's arrogance on all sides. I'm just hoping that we as the people of faith are willing to admit to it. Let me get one more quote that he says here that really talks about the stature of humanity. Um, and he says, our systems are founded on the belief that every individual has a sacred inner nature, what you and I would call a soul. And that nature is indivisible and immutable, unchangeable, which gives meaning to the world and which is the source of all ethical and political authority. Friends, for thousands of years of human history, some of the most important changes within the world has come down to the mere idea that as humans, we are different from the rest of creation. One of the key hallmarks in the elimination of slavery was done by people of faith to fully recognize that slaves have souls. And in, when you read the theology for slavery, that they tried to do the Bible, they made arguments that black slaves actually did not have souls. 
I just say all this to understand is that the existence of the soul is, is not just key to us as believers, but has actually impacted change. Just to conclude there, this is a reincarnation of the traditional Christian belief in a free and eternal soul that resides within each individual. Yet over the last 200 years, the life sciences have thoroughly undermined this belief. I love this. Scientists studying the inner workings of the human organism have found no soul there. We've dissected the cadavers. We've done the studies. You can't tell me where the soul exists within humanity. When we talk about a scientific perspective of the universe that exists without God, not only does it just take him out of play, but it makes you and I just regular creatures no different than anything on the face of the earth. I appreciate Harari for this because he extrapolates this and then says, for us to think that I'm superior to a bunny is arrogance. And really from that framework, if that framework exists, then he's right. He's right. If I take this perspective, the murder of a dog is no different than a murder of a child, a human child. But what we believe as people of faith is that the stature of humanity is different. Later in the passage, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, on the sixth day of creation, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From a biblical cosmology, your existence as a human being is important, not because our ancestors want a race, but because you have imprinted within you the DNA of the Creator God Almighty. And we see that in different things because, again, we as humans are the only creatures that live that actually consider our meaning and place within the universe. Unless bunnies do it, and I just have not been able to get through that conversation yet. I'll keep you posted. But from a biblical cosmology, the reason that we are at a higher echelon is because we were made in the image of God. Harari and some skeptics would call that then arrogance, but I would offer you the most important designation that we as God's people need to recognize is that we have been bestowed that status. Understand the etymology of bestow? That is something that's imparted and given to us. It is your Christmas present. You don't earn it. That's the key distinction. And in many ways, for us as Christians to claim that humans are the supreme species on the face of the earth is not forged from hubris, from arrogance, but it must be forged in humility. Friends, because you are imprinted with the image of God, you have been called to something greater than your pet dog, than the bird that flies. There's a difference in you, and you need to live up to it brings me to point three, then what's this all about? What's our purpose? Why then do we exist? When you look from an evolutionist perspective, our existence is not, uh, our purpose uh, does not really speak highly of us. Harari writes, according to the theory of evolution, all choices animal make, and by the way, we are included within this because we are just animals that have evolved. Our choices reflect our genetic code. If, thanks to its fits genes, an animal chooses to eat a nutritious mushroom and copulate with healthy and fertile mates, these genes pass on to the next generation. 
if because of unfit genes, an animal opts for poisonous mushrooms and anemic mates, these genes become extinct. However, if animals freely choose what to eat and with whom to mate, the natural selection has nothing to work with. Okay, some of you are like, I get that. Some of you are like, that's just more slides. Can I break down what Harari is talking about right here? From an evolutionist perspective, our existence is just mutation. It is just the choices that we make are the reaction of synapses within our mind that force us to make these. And this is why I like Harari too, is because as he plays this out, it's very logical. Because he says, really under this guise, you and I don't live under free will. That really every decision that we make is not choice. It is just the evolutionary reaction that we make. That happens in animals from an evolutionist perspective. That's where we're at. And actually, again, when we get back to the metaphysical, this is one of the things that actually it's difficult to, to develop empirically, but it talks about here this idea that, friends, as, as human beings, from an evolutionist perspective, you have no choice. You're just doing what's evolution. And then when you make a bad choice, that's just going to be, uh, that's going to end up in your fading out over time. I love just to juxtapose that with what happens in Genesis chapter 3 after humans are given reign over the world and God says, hey, you get dominion over everything, just one thing, leave my tree alone, right? But of course, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some of them to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's funny that I think we and people of faith just sometimes have problems with this. Sometimes it's because we're patriarchal, right? We're dudes like, way to screw things up, woman, you know, and some of your women are just like, shut up. But by the way, it just shows Adam was actually supposed to have given dominion, and he just kind of sat back, and he's like, hey, I have control of everything Eve. Go look at the tree, and that's how things happen. So he's just as culpable. Let's not, let's not get caught up within this. But the thing that does exist is that one of the aspects of our purpose is that we do have free will. That God has given us the ability of choose. I love this, that God has given us the ability to choose both right and wrong. Now stick with me as we're talking about the purpose and what we're called to. What Harari does then is uses the story of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. And he compares that to what he sees as the dawning of the scientific age, Isaac Newton. And he, he makes this point within his book because he talks about, you know, and I don't know if you know, the, you know, Isaac Newton, supposed to discover the laws of gravity, and anecdotally it happens when he's sitting underneath a tree, and he's thinking about it, and one day an apple from the tree falls and knocks him on the noggin, and then he realizes all that there is about the world of physics. And it is George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, right? It's, 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 it's myth. But he uses that myth to compare it to what he sees as the myth of the garden. And Harari writes, in the Garden of Eden myth, humans are punished for their curiosity and for their wish to gain knowledge. God expels them from paradise. In Newton's garden, nobody punishes him, just the opposite. Thanks to Newton's curiosity, humankind gains a better understanding of the universe, becomes more powerful, and takes an up their step towards technological, technological paradise. Untold numbers of teachers throughout the world recount the Newton myth to encourage curiosity, implying that if only we gain enough knowledge, we can create paradise here on earth. In fact, God is present even in the Newtonian myth. Newton himself is God. 
when biotechnology, nanotechnology, and the other fr fruits of science ripen, Homo sapiens will attain divine powers and come full circle back to the biblical tree of knowledge. What Harari says is like, let's look at this as a broader just metaphor for the world. And, and, and he says, really, you know, what, what faith does is suppresses curiosity, which suppresses the search for knowledge. And what science does is it liberates it. But he is so accurate, right? Because this is the problem that we see within a purely scientific pursuit of answers for cosmology. We become our own God. We become the ones who know everything. And friends, really, this is what I would offer to you, because the development of modern science has just been only the last few centuries. It's no different than the sin that has plagued us for the longest time. Stay with me. Not that the search of curiosity is sin. This is where I think, actually, Harari is a poor uh, hermeneutical master. He does not understand biblical interpretation because what he thinks is the sin in garden was God suppressing curiosity. It wasn't that. You know what we never get in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve are saying, hey, God, just real quick, why? Why can't we eat your tree? What's that about? Can you expound on that further? Like, we're fine to... We're fine to hold up to this room, but I, I, I'm telling you, I do not believe if they had asked God why, he would have been like, because I said so. I think the Lord would have pulled out the broader picture. Because our biggest challenge as humans, friends, is pride, lack of humility. We want to know everything, don't you? Man. I hate to be in a meeting when they're like, hey, Steve, what about this? And I'm like, I don't know. You know what I do? I BS my way through it, right? And you do it too. Why? Because me even saying I don't know just shows that I'm inept, I'm inadequate, I don't know everything. Friends, that is ultimately humiliating. We long to be in control. And really quickly then, because this has been kind of a critique launched at evolution, but again, there are Christians who want to live that same arrogance of knowledge too. I've met them. And they claim this like, well, this is what the Bible says, and if you don't do it exactly this way, this is, you are just wrong, you're sinful. I know everything. Friends, the problem with us as humans is that we need to be just a little bit humble. And I'll tell you, this is why I love the biblical story. And I challenge you this week. We haven't gone through Genesis 1, 2, 3. Go back and read that stuff. And don't read it from like this, okay, I'm trying to prove the history of the world. I'm going to do math on days and try to figure out how that works out with the evolutionary record. Don't get caught in that. Understand a much more simple cosmology. What's in the beginning? Darkness. Void. Chaos. That's what exists. Who enters upon the scene? God. What does God do? He takes darkness and void and chaos, and he says, let me show you what happens when I take this, and I can make that and redeem it into light and image and form and beauty. That's our cosmology, from chaos to order, from nothingness to beauty. Understanding that our origins were formed in the hand of a creator. Believing that our stature exists not because of what we know, but because we're known by someone who has bestowed that upon us. And that our purpose 
is simply to glorify him in everything that he, do, that he does. Whether it be the evolutionist or the evangelical, the issue is pride, human pride. And this is why I love the story of the scriptures, because human pride, friends, within our belief system, was nailed to the cross. When God, who knew everything, permitted himself to be killed on behalf of his most prized creation. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Jesus was light, and that light was the light of all men. That light shines in the darkness. But where is knowledge? The darkness has not understood it. I don't have a really good, like, takeaway from this. It's like, okay, so this week, you know, get some Bunsen burners and do some experiments and have something about this real. I think it needs to be said, though, because we need to see is that, friends, the enemy is not the crazy evangelical who wants to fight against science, nor is it the evolutionist who thinks they know absolutely everything about our origins and our future. The enemy is human pride in the middle, and you know who the worst perpetrator of that is? You. You. You, me. What this should do for us is not make us feel lofty by what we know or, or, or even prideful in the ability to admit what we don't know, but just to, to fall on our knees before the God created the world. And I hope we do that this year. And I um, hope that challenges us. So let's come back the next few weeks. We'll continue to discuss this topic. Will you pray with me and we'll be, we'll be dismissed? God, um, I just really ask that you take these thoughts and words and that you use them somehow. I, I, sometimes, you know, this is less of a sermon and more of a presentation or, a, or an examination, but God, you have given us minds and you've even given us, you know, the, the room for doubt. And I think a lot of us struggle with some of these gaps. How do we remain good followers of Jesus but not really dismiss those who could be seeking, who, who, who have a bad impression of Christianity. So as I lift up just the way that your spirit challenges with this, I lift up our mission field, our friends, our family, our colleagues. Just help us to really not just try to uh, confront ideas that stand against you, but also to stand up for ideas that we value and champion. Because you did that for us. You stood up. You bore all for us. We just thank you for our time of worship, for your word, for our minds. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, be dismissed. Have a great week.